And he testified and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Jesus made Judas accountable even while he, before he finished his, his evil deed, Jesus made him accountable for the satanic plot that he was hatching. Every creature's unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck with. Welcome, everyone, to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible-teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. Jesus was not emotionally detached from the events surrounding his passion. He loved Judas and was troubled for Judas's sake much more than his own. By revealing that one of them was a traitor, Jesus showed that he was in control of these events. He was not taken by surprise. Sometimes we imagine people are against us when they are not, and it makes us suspicious, unpleasant, and afraid. Jesus knew Judas was against him, yet his love and goodness seemed to become greater instead of lesser. Jesus even gave Judas the chance to repent without revealing him as the traitor to all the other disciples. Now here's Pastor Rob. He was the one who fulfilled that spot. And we know that these psalms are prophetic because in Psalm, one, uh, Psalm, in, in Psalm 109 verse 8, and why? Because the Holy Spirit tells us. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, notice what it says. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of them was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry, an office in a sense. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong because he, he hung himself. So at some point, the noose may have, whatever it was he hung himself, may have come loose or the branch broke. We don't really know, but he fell headlong and burst open in the middle. And here's a wonderful tidbit for you if you've already eaten breakfast. And all his entrails gushed out. That's kind of nice. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Here it is. So Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, associates these things. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and we already read Psalm 69, let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. And another verse, let another take his office. That was what we just read in Psalm 109. We know that those psalms are prophetic of Judas, this man of sin, this son of perdition, as Jesus called him. And you know what's interesting to me? Is the fact that the Lord allowed Judas to have the same opportunities the other disciples have. 
He chose him to be one of the twelve, to be with him and to learn of him. He also caused him to go out two by two with the others to heal the sick and to cast out demons. He also, Judas, saw the many miracles that Jesus did. He was eyewitness to these things. And on top of all those things, God, Jesus, gave to Judas special honors he, he was given the great responsibility to be the group's accountant. He carried the money bag, and he was stealing from it, and Jesus knew about it. And he continued to let him be the treasurer. And not only that, he was made the guest of honor at the Last Supper. His seat at that table that night, he was the guest of honor. Isn't that interesting? And not only that, but Jesus took a piece of bread, and he put it, he dipped it in the sop, and he gave it to the guest of honor. And that's the greatest thing a guest or a host of a, of a, a, a gathering like this could do. That was a symbol of friendship, at least on Jesus' part. It gives new meaning to the word love your enemies, doesn't it? Because in Matthew, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your fathers in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Isn't that amazing? This is such a great lesson for me because if you're like me right now, it is so easy to get, to, to get your, your emotions to just get um, riled up with all the things that are going on in our world right now, the things that are going on in politics. If we're not careful, church, we can grow hateful and spiteful, and we can say nasty things. I'm appalled at some of the things I see that Christians are saying. Appalled. And God is appalled by it, too. And he's appalled, let me tell you the truth about something, about my own self. He's appalled by the things that sometimes I say privately in my own home and the things that I'm musing on in my own heart. I'm not going to lie to you. That is the truth. That's the truth. And he will hold us accountable for those things. How much more now do we need to be loving and to be that example? See, if it were me at that table, and if you were at that table and you knew that he was about to betray you and you were going to hung and, and die the most painful death, and not only a most physically painful death, but guess what? Crucifixion was one of the worst forms of capital punishment. It was horrible. And then on top of that, try adding the sin of the world on your shoulders on top of the physical, physical pain. Now there's a, spiritual, a whole spiritual element that none of us can imagine that Jesus took upon himself. That, that I believe, was the blow from God that no one else could do. They can, he can receive blows from man. A lot of people, thousands of people, have received blows from man at, on, the, on the cross, but no one has taken the sin of the world. And for God himself, God the Father, to look upon his son and look at him and say, and to walk away. That's literally what happened on the cross. He was despised, he was rejected, a man of sorrows. Right? That's what happened. Prior to the passage that we are looking at this morning, Judas had already conspired. He had already conspired. Chronologically, Judas had already done part of the dirty deed already 
before he even stepped foot in that upper room. It tells us in Matthew 26 that one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And then it gets even more spooky because in Luke 22 it says this. It says, The feast of the Passover drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. It sounds like a great group of guys. The religious mafia. They sought how he might kill them, for they feared the people. And then notice this, underline this, if you're, if you're actually opened up to Luke 22 in verse 3. What does it say? Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot. He came from the town Iscariot. Many Judases, but he came from Iscariot. Satan entered this man, not a demon, not a demon, Satan himself. I cannot imagine being possessed by a demon, much less Satan himself. And don't you find it interesting that Jesus, and this was before the upper room incident that we're reading about now. Can you imagine being in the upper room and the only one that was cognizant that Satan was in someone was Jesus. And yet Jesus was right there next to him, feeding him bread. Showing to him, Judas, I love you right to the end. And you're culpable for what you're about to do. You are culpable for what you're doing, what you've already done, what you've already conspired, what you're going to do. I hold you accountable, and you will be held accountable for it. Woe to the man. It would have been better if he hadn't even been born, right? And so Satan entered Judas, who was numbered among the twelve, and so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them to them, and they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And this all happened before this evening. So let's look at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you, Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen. He knows whom he has chosen. The Lord knows all of us, and he has a plan for each of our lives. Just as he has a plan for those disciples in that upper room, he has a plan for us as well. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Isn't that a wonderful thought to get carried away and to know that God has a plan for me? He has a plan for you. He's got a place for you. And the church is, is big enough, and, and, and this world is big enough for all the Christians to be serving him and doing what he wants them to do. I know whom I have chosen, Jesus said. He knows the gifts and the callings that he has given to each of us, and they are without repentance. I love what he tells Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry. He said this, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. So much for the, uh, the abortion stuff that's going on in New York State. Well, it's got to be 18 weeks. It's going to be, you know, right up to the time of the birth, you can kill the child. Hey, guess what? God knew you before you were even in the womb. So back that whole thing up before conception even happened, and God knows that human being. Isn't that startling? <laughs> I would love for all the states in America to say, you know what, this is, the, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take that verse, and we're going to make that, we're going to stand that up in front of the Supreme Court, and they will bow to Almighty God. They will bow to Him. That scripture alone has enough power to crumble all, all their wicked deeds. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. But notice, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Again, this was what we looked at in Psalm 41. 
And um, the bottom of a feet, when he says, you've lifted up your heel against me, this is one of the most filthy things, and I, I precluded that in the message this morning. The feet of people in this time, because they didn't have nice leather shoes like you and I have, they had sandals, and they walked around dusty, and, and they stepped in the mud and refuse and everything else on the road, and their feet were horrible looking. And so to expose the bottom of your feet in this culture was tantamount to treachery. It, it was like the, the worst thing you could possibly do. I mean, Emily Post would be a, a, a astounded at the lack of etiquette. <laughs> There's a book called Broken Bread by Jay McCarl. I would, I would encourage, if you don't have this book, to get it, because it talks a lot about the stuff I've been talking about, about the placement of everybody around this table. But one of the things he said, he says, during one of my Israel tours, he says, I escorted a small group of friends to Jerusalem's colossal church of the Holy Sepulcher, a huge and ancient edifice believed by many to be uh, built atop the place where Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I really don't believe that. I think it's somewhere else. But anyway, um, the central feature of this enormous church is a small rock-hewn tomb preserved in the Great Rotunda, a relic which has been revered by Christians throughout the centuries as the actual grave where Jesus was buried, etc. And he says, My friends soon slipped into a long queue of Nigerian pilgrims who were waiting for a look inside the tomb. But since I had visited this place many times... And, I, and my feet were um, beginning to protest. I decided instead to look for a place where I could sit and read my Bible. I soon located a familiar wooden bench, hard but welcoming, wedged into the stony alcove across from the entrance. And I was just beginning to enjoy this momentary reprieve from our grueling tour of the old city when loud and incoherent shouting interrupted my reading. It was all directed at a dark-haired European woman seated to my left. In front of her stood a, a tall, black-bearded man clad in a long gray robe and capped with a brimless stovepipe hat. He was a priest, one of the custodians of the holy tomb, and he was very unhappy, railing on the woman and pointing, and neither of us recognized the strange language of the angry priest, and he made motions to him to signify her bewilderment at his umbrage. <laughs> Realizing that, he could not, uh, that she could not understand, the man gestured, crossing and then uncrossing his rigid arms, and then he pointed at her feet. And I looked down, he said, and I saw that she was wearing an elegant pair of black, low-heeled walking shoes, but her ankles were crossed. Her relaxed and modest pose had allowed her feet to angle ever so slightly upward, exposing the soles of her shoes. And so this is this is the idea behind this. When And it was an affront to be in this holy place, right? I mean, little awkward, but, you know, nonetheless, that was the culture. That was the, even today, you know, they, there's certain places when you go into Israel, you got to wear a certain clothing, and they won't let you in if you're showing a little too much. But to lift your heel up, to expose the bottom of your foot, the most unclean part of your body in that culture, was the greatest shove in your face and disrespect. And so when Jesus said, "My, this one who has lifted up his heel against me, but notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19 back in our text. He says, I tell you before it comes, underline that, before it comes, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And this statement of Jesus fits the narrative of the entire gospel. Because these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, the Bible, and you know this, is the only holy book that declares to know the future 100% accurate. It's the only holy book. It's the only book 
that can declare the end from the beginning, that can say and, and, and share things that have, haven't come to pass as if they already had come to pass. You know, Jesus and God, they live in eternity. They dwell in eternity, outside of time. He has the ability, like a blimp, going over Macy's Day Parade on Thanksgiving Day. The blimp can see the end of the parade and the beginning of the parade, but the people on the ground, all they can see is the marchers and the trumpeteers and the, and the people waving the baton as they go by. They're right there in front of them. They can't see the end from the beginning, but God can. He can see that. He's eternal. And he's even much more than that because he knows every person in that parade. He knows exactly what they are thinking, where they came from. He knows every life experience, every thought, every word that will be spoken. See, this is who God is. And he tells them in advance so that they might know. And here in verse 19, Jesus is giving his disciples to hold him accountable to the claims that he has made of his deity. And what do I mean by that? In Deuteronomy, God, speaking to Moses, says, I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their brethren. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses. It's not going to come for many years, but I'm going to raise up a prophet. His name's going to be Jesus. I will raise up a prophet from you, like you, from among the, their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whatever, that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. <laughs> That's a pretty stiff penalty, wouldn't you think? That prophet will die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. And see, if Jesus is who he said he was, he can tell them in advance what's coming, and it will happen. You can bet everything on it. You can bet your very life on it. Do you bet your life on this? When he says that something's going to come to pass, do you believe it? When he says, I will prepare, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back for you, do you believe that? I mean, we have to really search our hearts about this stuff because, folks, we're coming down to the end. We are coming down to the end. It's time for the Christian church to believe in this again and stop teaching sermons that are 15 minutes talking about current events. This has to be the diet. This has to be the thing. This has to be what we look for. This is the word of God. It's not just some, you know, Harlequin novel. And it's alive. It's alive. And we're going to read it and we're going to understand it more as we go along. And I tell you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to read. I'm loving it. Do you love it? If you don't love it, and be honest, if you don't love it, if it's boring to you, pray. <laughs> because listen, God wants to make it very, he wants to open it to you. He wants to make you love his word. I love his word. I can't get enough of it. I have to pry myself away from it. That's all I want to do. I want to read the Word of God. And more importantly, as I read it, I need to do it. I need to do it. It's one thing getting it in my head, but now I've got to appropriate it in practical ways in my life. I want to do that. And you know, if that's your desire too, he's going to do it. He's going to do it, and it's going to be a process. Don't get discouraged. Don't get befuddled and don't get tripped up because he wants to do it in you as much as you. He wants to do it more than you actually do. And so he is right there with you. I love Jesus for that. I love the Spirit of God, don't you? I love that about him. 
And notice in verse 20, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see the wonderful unity there? The father, the servant, and the one whom the servant is ministering to, it's all one. What a great unity that is. Enjoy the unity of Christ. Enjoy the unity of this fellowship. I pray that we all would enjoy that. Notice verse 21, And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit, and he testified and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Jesus made Judas accountable even while he, before he finished his, his evil deed, Jesus made him accountable for the satanic plot that he was hatching. It says in Matthew 26, As they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you, and this very evening that he's speaking to them in another gospel, he says, Assuredly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, how many of the disciples were really paying attention and heard this? We don't really know. I would imagine it was just a few around where Jesus was at, because they were talking and fellowshipping and hanging out. Some of them heard, but they didn't understand. And maybe they just disregarded it and continued talking. And we don't really know. It's kind of interesting. But Jesus said, The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him. But notice, here's the accountability. And here's what Judas heard from Jesus' own mouth. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying, notice that, the current, the present tense, he was betraying him. He already started the betrayal. Going back in time, maybe a day, maybe hours, he'd already started that process. He was betraying. Notice the pre- continuous present tense. It would have been better for that man. And then Judas, who, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said, it is it you, as you said. And John, being on the right side of Jesus, could hear that. John was on Jesus' right side. Judas, the guest of honor, was on his left side. And as John was reclining up next to Jesus, he could overhear everything Judas and Jesus were talking about. That's why it's in his gospel. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he had spoke. Again, this bewilderment is really amazing. The only one who really knew what was happening was Jesus. The other disciples thought, you know, Judas is a great guy. He's one of us. He's carrying the bag. He's the guest of honor. Jesus must really love him. Man, I wished I was the guest of honor. So the last person they were thinking who would betray him would be Judas. And so uh, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. you know who that was? It was John. It was John. None other than John. And we know this because this triclinium that they would be at, this table that would only be a number of inches high, it would be this, this arrangement as they sat around the table. John being on the left side. The very first one, the bodyguard, Jesus being the host, right to the right of John, and then to the right of Jesus even, the guest of honor. That would be the place of the guest of honor, and that was Judas. And how could John make such a statement like this? The one whom Jesus loved was leaning on the breast. How could he make that comment? Very simply because he loved the Lord with all of his heart. 
He could make that comment because he loved Jesus. He loved and was willing to receive. Notice, he not only loved Jesus, but he's willing to receive the love of Jesus. Are you that type of person? Do you love the Lord and are you willing to receive his love, even though none of us deserve it? That's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of John. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.